And let's pray. Father, thank you again this morning for your word and for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal so much to us. Thank you that today as we look at um, this chapter in, in the revelation of your son, that as we start to see the, uh, the prelude to him carrying out the judgments that are coming on the earth and on unbelieving man and on Satan and his minions. And I pray that you would help us to, to see you this morning, that we would join with those who are in your presence and ascribing the worth that you are due and therefore the worship that you are due. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we were looking at chapter 4, we see that there is a prelude to judgment. The Apostle John has been caught up in the Spirit and taken up into literally the throne room of heaven. And as he sees the throne, the throne, on which is seated Almighty God, he then sees 24 other thrones that are set around God's throne. And there are four, what he describes as uh, living creatures. When we went back and saw in Ezekiel, uh, we see that these are cherubim. And we see these 24 elders that are, again, uh, representative of the redeemed. And they are consistently and frequently worshiping God. And they are ascribing value to him. We're going to see today uh, that oftentimes their worship is triggered by a particular word. And that word is worthy. Worthy are you. Worthy, um, the idea of worship, if you, if you wanted to uh, kind of have a one word um, description for worship is to call it worth-ship. You are ascribing praise, you are ascribing value to the object that you are praising. And in this case here, that is God himself. And we saw last week, and, and really chapters four and five would probably be better as a single chapter. The chapter break here is not particularly helpful. This is a continual event. Um, going from the time that John comes up into the throne room up until the Lamb has got the book from God Almighty in his hand. And first thing in chapter 6, he's beginning to open the book. So let's read chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. 
Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. We see John now sees God Almighty. And we know that it's God Almighty how? Jesus is the Lamb, exactly. And so, here God is, and God has in his right hand a book. The, book, the word here is Biblion. Take one guess at what word we get from that. Yeah, that's right, Bible. Now, this book is, not, is, is in all likelihood not a book like we consider a book. Our book... Is, has got a binding, it's got pages, multiple pages, and you can flip pages in order to have a whole lot of material inside of a binding. This is all, in all likelihood a scroll. Now, the significance of the scroll when you look at it is it's got writing on the inside, on the portion that would roll up, and on the outside. Um, oftentimes, you'll see that books kind of have a similar length. When you look at the Gospels, when you look at the book of Acts, when you, when you see those, uh, oftentimes, you know, there's only so much you can put on the scroll. And so the other thing is that there's writing on the inside and outside can also be either A, that there's, he's, whoever wrote it has got a lot to say, or B, what oftentimes would be done is when you had um, 
a testament, like a will, or a title deed, that as you rolled this up, you would also put writing on the outside so that you would be able to have an idea as to what was inside. And then these scrolls would be sealed, oftentimes at multiple locations. Now, this is done with, this was done with wills, this was done with um, title deeds, it was done with contracts, there were a number of things that would be rolled up and then have seals on them in order to maintain their integrity, which is going to be uh, an issue that we get to discuss when we come to what exactly is this book that God is holding. What does it represent? Now, there are two dominant views as to, as to what it is. And that is that, one, it is the title deed of the earth. The other is that it is some type of a testament or a will. Now, both of those have got biblical precedence. You will find um, in Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 32, you will see where Jeremiah, even though the invasion and the conquering of Judah is imminent, Jeremiah, uh, his cousin approaches him, um, will you buy my property so that I would be able to have rights of repossession down the road? And Jeremiah goes and he purchases the land and he has a title deed drawn up. And this title deed, one of them is rolled up. It is sealed. He says, put it in an earthenware jar. And the, the, the significance of this is that the day is coming when property is again going to be bought and sold and redeemed in this land. And so these people who are on their way out God is already giving them encouragement that he will bring them back. If not them, their, their descendants would come back. And so that is a precedent, a biblical precedent, for the idea of it being the title deed of the earth. The idea of that being is that the earth belongs to who? The earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof, right? And so the idea here is that um, God is staking his claim to the earth and that this scroll represents that title deed. Now that is one. The other precedent is when you look in the book of Hebrews, you see a word that is used often in the book of Hebrews. You see the word covenant. If you've got a King James, you might see the word testament. And the idea of that is, is that there has been a new covenant made. And that new covenant is represented by what? Think of Jesus during the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, right? And so the idea there is that you have a testament. And in the book of Hebrews, you'll find that that is also, uh, there's a statement that's made that where there is a testament, what must occur 
for that testament to be valid. You have to have death, right? You have to have the death of the one who made it. And so, again, this is something that would be rolled up and sealed. So they've both got biblical precedent. And here's the issue. Neither one of them, both of them, have issues. A title deed for the earth isn't going to, is, is not, is descriptive. Do you understand what, that, what I mean by that? A title deed says this property, and it will measure out what the property is, and it's owned by this individual. And so it is descriptive. As we're going to start to see next week, the seals and the content of this book are prescriptive. This is, when, when you see, as we're, as we're going to start to see next week, when a seal is broken and part of the contents of the book are exposed, and now the, they're able to look in and see what this is, what's coming out of that? It's judgment. It is instruction as to how to accomplish something. And so again, that's not something typically that you see in a title deed. If you own a house, you should be familiar with a title deed, right? The title deed contains the legal description to your property. It sets forth that you are the legal owner. And it may include restrictions on how the property can be used. A will, on the other hand, does often have instructions as to how you are to carry it out. The problem with this being a covenant or being a, a testament in that way, there's another word that is often used for that. And that word is not present here. In fact, it only occurs once in the book of Revelation. And it's, it's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. And so neither one of these is, 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 that's not a hill to die on as far as, you know, setting it out specifically. So each one of these seals, as they are broken, something else is taking place. We're going to see four horsemen next week. We're going to see um, these different steps that begin in the process of God evicting Satan. Satan is going to be judged and set aside. Unbelieving man is going to be judged and condemned. And believers are going to be rescued and redeemed and kept as an inheritance for the Son. Now, one thing to keep in mind as we're coming into the, to the section of the book that's dealing with judgment, even in judgment, there's grace and mercy. In fact, we're going to run into, in the fifth seal, we're going to run into a large group of people. And they are going to represent those who have been killed during the tribulation. And they're referred to as innumerable. 
And so even in the midst of judgment, God is still portraying and, and showing incredible grace and mercy. So, God is holding a book. And John understands that this book is significant. He wants to be able to see inside this book. And a search begins. You have a loud angel, a strong angel, and he is loud. And he proclaims. The interesting word about this, this word for proclaiming, it is most often translated preaching. This guy is an outdoor preacher. And he's got a voice. So in the, in the day, you would have the town herald. Somebody who's got a big voice, who is able to come out and proclaim a message, and everybody in town is going to hear him. That's the idea of this angel. He's speaking loud enough. There's no place where you can hide from this message. And the, and the message is really, it's a question. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to take this book? Who's worthy to break a seal, seal by seal, and look inside to see what's inside? And there is a widespread search. Heaven is searched. The earth is searched. Where do you think who is being sought? Who, who's being um, interrogated from under the earth? Who would under the earth represent? I'm sorry? Okay, demons. Where's, where's the place that is typically held as being under the earth? Hades. The dwelling place of Sheol, the dwelling place of the dead. This search is exhaustive. And even though going through anybody and everybody there's no one found. No one is found worthy. And John is beside himself. Because when it says, and I began to weep greatly, uh, the idea is, is that this is, this is weeping in the full demonstrative sense. He's not, there's not a tear. This isn't like the commercial back in the 70s, maybe even back into the 60s, of the Indian guy paddling the canoe through all the pollution, and all of a sudden you turn and look at the camera and there's a tear running down his cheek. This ain't that. This is uncontrollable wailing. Because here is something that is important enough that God himself has possession of it in his right hand, right? The right hand, the hand of power. This is the one who is seated on his throne. He's the sovereign ruler, and he's got something, and we can't see into it. And John 
is uncontrollably wailing. And then one of the elders comes over and plays dad. What is a common comment made by a father to a child that is basically needlessly wailing? Stop your crying. That's enough. Whoop. That's it. Stop it. Knock it off. That's what the elder is coming and saying to him. Knock it off. Because it's pointless. There is one who's worthy. Stop weeping. And again, here, here's the, again the biblical word for getting your attention. Behold. I love the microphone right about then. Look. Here he is. This is the only time in the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as a lion. 29 times he's referred to as a lamb in this book. Here, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now again, why use that phrase? If it's the only time in the book it's going to be used, why here and why that phrase? It is from, again, it's drawing back and tying to the Old Testament, and this is going all the way back to Genesis. And so this is tying back to Genesis where Judah is referred to as the lion's whelp, right? And so tying back to Jesus coming from the line of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, now, I seem to remember something back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, I think, where God makes a covenant with David that says, one of your, you're always going to have a descendant on the throne, and one of your descendants is going to be the Messiah. So how is it? In fact, I think Jesus asked this question once of the Pharisees. Isn't Messiah going to be a descendant of David? Well, yeah, he is. Then why does David call him Lord? Why does David call him Master? And they don't have an answer for that. Because how is it that you can have one who is pre-existing before David, he's the root of David, David comes out of Christ. And yet, Christ, Jesus, is coming out of David. How does that work? Humanly, how can it? It can't. Ray Stevens may have been able to write a song, I Am My Own Grandpa, but that ain't going to work here. Because you can't be alive and have this man be your descendant and then yet be his. So what is that asserting about Jesus? 
He's eternal. He's everlasting. He, was pre, he pre-existed David. So in other words, that makes him God. We see time and again here in this chapter where Jesus' deity is asserted. And so here, he's the root of David, the line of the tribe of Judah. He has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now this word for overcome is nikao. Now what brand of shoes do you think might come from that? Nikes. Nikao means victory. It means to overcome. Same word that's used in chapters 2 and 3 when it talks about to him who overcomes. The idea of overcoming is there's been opposition. And that opposition has been squashed. It has been overcome. He's victorious. And so because he is victorious, and because he is God himself, he's worthy to take the book and to open it. Now, what is the response of the four living creatures and the 24 elders to God, the Father? What are they often doing? And they're worshiping. And how are they doing it? Okay, they're singing new songs. Prostrating. That is the most common response. And often it's not just prostrating, it's prostrating in abject terror. When you encounter God, you're not encountering him as a warm fuzzy. The, the, the often, Isaiah sees God, and what's his response? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's terrified, because he sees God on his throne. The, <laughs> the train of his robe fills the, the temple with glory, and I am undone. When people encounter God, they are doing what the, they are on their faces before him. And we see it often in this book. The 24 elders, are, are, are the, the four living creatures are prostrating themselves before the throne. The 24 elders are casting their crowns down on the ground before him. They, they spend a lot of time dusting their white linen off when they get back up. So John sees the lamb. I see a lamb standing as if slain. Now this word lamb is not the word for sheep. This word is the one that would be used for a small lamb. The kind that would be offered at the Passover. You'll remember, and you remember the story of the Passover, right? There would be this little lamb. 
And that lamb would be brought into the family home. And it would stay there for four days. So all the kids are getting attached to this lamb. And then that day would come. Dad would lay his hand on the head of that lamb and then cut its throat. That lamb is dying. Its blood is covering us. And it's a remembrance of the Passover that last night in Egypt. And so this is the word that's used to describe Jesus. Is that diminutive? So it's not, again, this is, this is a lamb. And for all time, apparently, that lamb has the appearance of having been slaughtered. I don't know if you've ever slaughtered an animal in that way. It's bloody. We slaughtered a, a, a beef last week. There's blood everywhere. And yet this lamb is not lying on the ground dead. This lamb has been slain, but he's alive and he is standing. And he is ready to take on his responsibility here. Now this lamb has a little bit of a different appearance. It's got seven horns. Now I've never seen a seven horned lamb and I've sure never seen a lamb that had seven eyes. So as we see this, is everybody, when, when we talk about a lamb, does everybody have a visual image of a lamb in their mind? Do we all know what a lamb looks like? Do we all have an idea as what, how a lamb would act? Especially the little ones. I mean, they jump around. They're, they're, they're incredibly cute. We have an idea of what that is and what that looks like. Now we get something different, though. This, this lamb's got seven horns and seven eyes. So what, how would we look at this? Is this some deformed animal or... Is this lamb then something that we would be familiar with, but it's got some other attributes that we need to talk about? That's how metaphors work. That's how those examples work. They use something that is familiar, and then they have another aspect or characteristic to communicate a point. Biblically speaking, what did a horn represent? Power. Power, right. Power, authority. The idea of having seven of them would be an indication of what? Complete power. Complete authority. Now, I hope as you're, as you're thinking, when, you, when we think about all right, complete power. I seem to remember Jesus at one point saying, all power, all authority has been given to me, right? That's the idea here of seven horns. 
He has complete power and authority. What's the concept of the seven eyes? Now that one you might have to think about for a minute. So again, what does John also give? The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, which have gone out into all the earth. That is provided to him, and therefore provided to us. So the symbol, the, what it is that God wants to communicate, is given so that we can understand that. So you have seven horns, he's got complete authority, he's got seven eyes, the seven spirits of God, which means it's everywhere. You can't hide from him. And then Jesus does something. He came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. What didn't he do that everybody else did? He's not falling down in God's in the Father's presence. Why not? Because he's God. Exactly. And so here it is, here he is, as he approaches the throne, he approaches the throne as an equal. So again, what is that demonstrating? His deity. deity. So when you're speaking with somebody who goes sideways on the deity of Christ, here's... You can bring him to chapter 5 here and you can so see this. He's not acting like a lesser. He's not lesser in any way. That wasn't voluntary. Remember, he didn't think that being equal, being equal with God was something to be grasped, to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He chose to be humble to be humiliated. And so he approaches the throne. He takes the book out of the right hand of God Almighty. When he takes the book, the four living creatures and the elders come unglued. This is the pinnacle moment. Things are broken. They're about to get fixed. All of the things, when you go back into time and you see suffering, when you see the effects of a fallen world, when you see... <laughs> You sit at the bedside of an infant that is dying. You're feeling the effects of a fallen world. When parents are sitting by the bedside of their young one, 
who is suffering, you see the effects of a fallen world. When you see genocides, you know, Stalin was famous for saying one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. There's a bunch of us in here who know the effects of a fallen world. In fact, there's nobody in here who doesn't. When you have the prayers that are offered before God, the pleadings, the petitions, the beggings, all of those are looking forward to when God makes things right. Many of us in here now are older. What's one of the things now that's so attractive about heaven? No more pain, no more sorrow, all of that stuff is over and done with. Jesus taking the book out of the hand of the Father is where that starts. And so the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Up until now, they've been falling down before God the Father. Now, they are seeing Jesus asserting his rightful place as ruler. And they fall down before him. And now, now we, we get the band. They've each got a harp. And they've got these golden bowls, which are full of the prayers of the saints, full of incense, the prayers of the saints. And now they sing. Up until now, they've been saying. Now they're singing. Worthy. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Now, is this all in third person or is some of it first person? And that depends on which codex you use. So for instance, um, if you have a King James, you will find that you have purchased us for God. It's first person. And then, so in verse 9, you have first person. In verse 10, across the board, you have third person. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. If you use a codex that, that is third person, you've purchased men for God, that leaves the door open 
for the 24 elders to be, we already know that the four living creatures are what? Okay, the four living creatures are what kind of being? They're angels, right? They're cherubim, they're angels. The 24 elders though, if we're talking in the third where you have purchased men for God, that leaves open the door that the 24 elders can be angels. Because they're talking in the third person. They're talking about God redeeming men. Now we talked about this some last week. The, the difficult thing with, with, with holding that particular view is that nowhere are angels de, uh, described as wearing crowns. Nowhere are they described as sitting on thrones. Nowhere are they described ruling. They're always referred to as ministers. They're ministers of mercy. They're ministers of service. And so it doesn't fit in that way. However, in referring in third person, has God, so let's go back and just look at how God, Christ has purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who got left out no one there's no one too remote there's no one too inaccessible God's rescued somebody from all of them now it may be in verse 10 the reason that it switches to third person is that the living creatures cannot claim verse 10 personally. Angels are not priests. Angels will not reign upon the earth. That has been promised to redeemed people. It has not been promised to angels. And so it could be that the reason that that switches over is because some of them that are saying it actually cannot claim it personally. They can't say us because they don't fall into that group. The point here, though, is, again, as soon as Jesus takes the book, they can see that this is now moving forward. God's redemption plan has been individual to this point. Now he's moving to redeeming his creation. But it doesn't stop there. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriad apparently was the largest number that the Greeks actually had a word for. And a myriad is 10,000. So 10,000 times 10,000, put your math cap on, you gotta, you gotta think now for a minute and keep track of a bunch of zeros. 
10,000 times 10,000 is how many? 100 million. Who said that? Oh, yeah. You've been paying attention in school. Good for you. 100 million. Now, is John standing around 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 485, 5,612? Is he counting them? No. What's the idea of myriads of myriads? There's lots and lots and lots of angels. There's a whole bunch of them. So again, please don't be, you know, boy, if I don't pray today, God's angels are somehow going to be outnumbered. And, no. No. There's a whole bunch of them. And they're not passive either. They're saying with a loud voice, when you read this, do you think about the day when we're going to be able to hear it? I love to be in here when people are truly singing. This beats any choir that's ever going to be up here on these steps here, all right? Because there's so many of them. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I'm about to break into the Messiah. <laughs> the sevenfold blessing. And he's worthy to get all of it. And in fact, he's the only one who's worthy of all of that. They're ascribing value to him. That's the basis of worship. Lord, you're, you are worthy of all of these things. And it keeps going. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. So what's excluded here from this group? Nothing and nobody. Remember, when, it's, when Paul wrote in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, here's where that one starts. So again, nobody can hide from this. There's nobody who's going to be able to crawl in a corner and say, not me. Uh-uh. Every living Thing, every created thing. So when Jesus said, listen, if these were silent, the rocks would cry out. Yeah, well, the rocks are singing on this one. Every created thing. I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now again, what are we seeing here? How... Where is Jesus in the pecking order here? He's at the top. 
he sits with his father as absolute sovereign ruler over all. Nothing excluded. Blessing, the idea of being eulogized, being honored because of who they are. Of honor. Recognizing that they are above all and are to be worshipped as above all. Glory. Dominion. This is the idea. So again, what is being expressed when, when, when you are, are saying here to God and to the Lamb be the, the, the honor and the glory and the blessing and the dominion? What is that a manifestation of by the one who is worshiping? It's ascribing worth and value to them. Where does it place the worshiper? Under, right? It's the position of humility. Realizing that I am the one who is the lesser. And will always be. And yet, how am I treated? What do I deserve? Death. I deserve hell. I deserve eternal separation from God. I deserve nothing good at all, ever, ever. And yet, what are we given? <laughs> yeah, everything. How about a front row seat here? I don't know if you think about these things. I deserve judgment. And yet the day is coming when I will be able to see God face to face. I will be made into the image of Christ completely. I will know him as, even as I am fully known. Now we see through a glass darkly. It's like looking through shower glass. You know that stuff that's all opaque and it's got the lines and it's cloudy and you can see on the other side, you can see that there's a form over there but you really can't see any detail. That's how we see now. Then, face to face. When you are tempted to be discouraged, when you're having one of the moments when your prayers are going into those bowls because you're pleading with God to intercede on someone else's behalf, then remember this chapter. Remember the things that God puts us through are intentional. They're not accidental. He is putting, those into, putting us into those places. It's going to manifest his glory as we obey and as we, are, as we trust him in the face of great opposition or great sorrow. 
that ascribes value to him. Trusting him ascribes value because he's trustworthy. His trustworthiness is not dependent on how I feel at this moment. And so everybody gets in on that one. Yes. So the question is, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that pointing to this? Yes. And I don't think it's going to be a one-time event in all truthfulness. <laughs> it is. It is very cool. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Now, I know that there are preachers here in this church who are sometimes very encouraged when there is actually a verbal response from the congregation as to what is being proclaimed. What does amen mean? So be it. That's right. Verily, verily is literally amen, amen. That's true. And so I am acknowledging the truthfulness of something that is being proclaimed. That's what these four guys, these four cherubim do all the time. Why can they do it all the time? Because they're in the presence of God and everything that he says is true. And so this is a common, common, common theme. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Isn't it interesting? With judgment coming imminently, they're worshipping God for the great things that he's doing. So how do the angels view God's wrath? We're gonna, we're, actually, we're going to get a front row seat of that one too. One of the judgments that's coming is uh, there's going to be something fall from heaven and it's going to turn just about all the water to blood. What's the angel's response to that going to be? You're right to do it, God. They slaughtered your people. And you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. God's wrath is just as beautiful as his grace, as his mercy. And I got room to be, I have got cause to be very, very grateful today. Why? Because I'm not subject to it. And not because I'm, great, I'm a great guy. I'm not subject to it. Because there's been one who endured it for me on my behalf. That wrath was satisfied. 
and I'll never experience it. That's the prelude. Questions? None? So you wait long enough. Hi, Mary. Okay, so the question is, back in chapter 5, verse 3, why would they look under the earth for someone who was worthy? The idea here is that throughout time, there has been no one, there has been no man born, a natural man, you know, having a, an earthly father and mother. There has been no one over the entire course of history that was worthy that had the qualifications in order to be able to take this book. And so what it's doing is it's setting apart Jesus from anybody else that's ever walked on this planet. That's the idea. And so they go through Old Testament saints, even the big guys. There's no one who's worthy to do that. That would probably be the dead, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it, is an, it is an exhaustive search. No stone left unturned. And so, no one, ever, no one is ever going to be able to look and say, well, you know what, that guy could have done it. Or how about that guy over there? None. There was only one who was able to do that. And that's Jesus. He's it. And therefore, because he is the only one who's qualified, then he's also the only one who's worthy to be worshipped. Right? Okay, the question, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. The question is, uh, is this uh, a going back to where um, creation is being reclaimed? And so uh, where Adam failed, now man is going to be able to uh, have dominion over the earth and rule and, uh, and, and do the things that we were, that Adam was created to do in, in Eden. Is that an accurate? representation yeah 
In a, word, in, a, in a word, yes. God is making all things new. He's, he's restoring Eden. The, the, the difference between the original Eden and this one is that um, it, it took out the whole, well, be fruitful and multiply. Well, there's going to be all kinds of folks now in order to be in God's creation in Eden. The one difference being between the second Eden and the first, there's no more tempter. There's no more deceiver. And therefore, what will always be absent? Sin. Sin will always be absent. Discontentment will always be absent. Now, I'm a, I'm a carnivore as much as anybody. I love a good cut of meat. There's not going to be any meat in heaven. And you know what? I'm going to be thrilled with that. <laughs> because there's never again going to be any discontentment. That's worth pondering for a while, by the way. In fact, that's chapter 22, I believe. Behold, I'm making all things new. Any other questions? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. And Father, you and, you and our Redeemer are worthy to receive blessing and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I don't know how many times we're going to get to say that, but it'll never be enough. How grateful we are that you have provided a way of redemption Lord Jesus, that you were willing to pay the price in order to, to make that happen. And how we long for the day when you are going to stretch out your hand and you're going to take that book and you're going to start breaking seals and start the process of judgment on your enemies and ultimately the recreation of all so that everything will forever be uncontaminated, even by the memory of sin. We long for that day. Lord, help us to be faithful, that we would be those who proclaim your truth now, so that those who are held in slavery to the fear of death might hear your truth and might turn to be saved, that you would rescue them from the dominion of darkness and translate them into the, your kingdom of light. Help us to worship you with all of our hearts today as we gather. In Jesus' name, amen.